Hello and welcome to Thoughts on Foreign Policy. My name is Derek Basakio and as always, I will be your host for today's program. I have a great show for you today and I hope you'll enjoy it. We'll start with the quote of the week and then move into our topics of discussion. I would like to address Israel and Palestine as well as Thailand. Finally, we'll discuss the crises in Ukraine and Iraq. You may be wondering what happened to last week's podcast. A lot was going on in the world and I decided to hold off on the episode until I could get the complete picture on a few subjects. That and I was kind of lazy. This week's will make up for it. My quote of the week for this episode takes us all the way to North Korea, where a spokesman for the country's foreign ministry had this to say recently about the new film The Interview, starring Seth Rogen and James Franco. Making and releasing a movie on a plot to hurt our top-level leadership is the most blatant act of terrorism and war, and will absolutely not be tolerated. If the United States administration allows and defends the showing of the film, a merciless countermeasure will be taken. Sounds ominous, but that's about it. Let's gloss over the obvious fact that the American government would be violating a number of laws if it were to forbid the movie where Mr. Rogan and Mr. Franco pair up to assassinate the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, in a CIA plot. Instead, let's look at North Korea's capability to respond to the movie. That was me listing off their merciless countermeasures. Now certainly North Korea can ratchet up tensions with South Korea. It could perhaps even skirmish with South Korean forces, which is something that the North has long shown an appetite for doing, particularly in the last few years. But that's about all it can do should it choose. It will exercise enough restraint to avoid outright war. There won't be any Olympus has fallen type attacks on the American homeland. There won't be any nuclear war to worry about. Now the interesting part is that reportedly, and despite the offensive nature of the movie, Kim Jong-un still plans to see it. So why the tough talk? Yes, we always see tough talk from North Korea. It's part of how the Kims are able to maintain their power and their way of demonstrating to their generals that they aren't soft. With regards specifically to the interview, they don't want anyone getting any ideas about assassinating Mr. Kim. The idea for the movie stems from an actual interview conducted with Mr. Kim by reporters from Vice News, so you have to wonder if Mr. Kim will be doing any of those again in the near future. The movie is slated for an October release. From the trailer, it looks to be absolutely hilarious, and I would like to recommend seeing it. Let's move on to our topics for today's discussion. We begin in Israel. At the end of last year and moving into this year, the Obama administration made a push to restart peace talks between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority. Despite the efforts of Secretary of State John Kerry, who traveled around the region nonstop to urge the talks to find a common ground, the peace talks ultimately broke down. Today they look even further from accomplishable than at the beginning of the year. As the talks collapsed, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah party made a reconciliation agreement with Hamas, the militia group that runs the Gaza Strip and is recognized by the United States as a terrorist organization. The Israelis were livid with the reconciliation. Hamas, after all, is sworn to the destruction of Israel and has conducted countless terror attacks against the Israeli homeland. I chose to remain optimistic about the reconciliation agreement, mainly for the fact that I saw it as the only way a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine would ever work. With Fatah in control of the West Bank and Hamas in control of the Gaza Strip, no deal reached between Israel and Mr. Abbas's party would be wholly legitimate. It would not take into account Hamas and Hamas's control of the Gaza Strip or Hamas's interests. Such an agreement would fall flat on its face fairly fast. Now, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned that negotiating with Hamas is not going to happen and that the group is a danger to Israel. These last two weeks, Mr. Netanyahu's assertions appear to be entirely accurate. Three Israeli teens were kidnapped in the West Bank and, after an extensive search operation, were found dead. Though it remains to be seen who directly is responsible for the kidnappings and murders, Hamas encouraged more such attacks on Israeli citizens. 
Israel has responded fiercely in the West Bank and has traded bombardments with Hamas in Gaza. For Mr. Netanyahu, this is a grim, I told you so, type of moment. Rather than tone down Hamas's hostility, the reconciliation agreement with Fatah has only seemed to add legitimacy to its strategy, and unfortunately, it is the citizens of both Israel and Palestine that suffer for it. Despite the recent turmoil, I still believe that the reconciliation agreement between Hamas and Fatah is the only thing that can ever produce a lasting peace. So long as the Gaza Strip is firmly in Hamas's hands, this will be the case. The group's tactics are ruthless and unjustifiable, but its own concerns for the livelihood of Palestinians is a real problem. Years of frustration at the slow progress of statehood under a civil approach have only deepened Hamas's resolve and fortified its support. Undoing that will take the utmost diplomacy and a willingness by the Israelis to take a gamble. Given the attacks of the past few weeks, gambling with his people's security is not something Mr. Netanyahu is in the mood to do, but there is no other alternative. With any luck, moderation will prevail in the current situation. Just as easily as tensions have risen, they can be diffused again. Taking steps towards that would benefit both sides and prevent a destructive uprising from breaking out. In the next few days and weeks, keep an eye out for what happens next. Let's shift gears a little bit and head east to Thailand. At the end of May, Thailand's military announced it was suspending the country's constitution and taking full control of the government. Its actions were a result of the violence in parts of the country, particularly around the capital, that had caused death and destruction. A sluggish economy of late only made the matter worse. In the immediate aftermath of the coup, curfews and assembly restrictions were imposed to maintain order. Now, it should be noted that Thailand has suffered a number of coups during its modern history. The military there has often seen a role for itself in politics and has asserted that role where it saw fit. Assuming this one goes as the others have, the military will relinquish its control when it deems the country has stabilized enough. There is no telling, however, when that will be. Some of the coups have returned to civilian rule quickly, while others have seen the military in charge for decades. Until such time as the military finds it sufficient to hand back power to civilian rule, it has unsurprisingly clamped down on free speech. The suppression of protest has gone so far as to ban the three-finger sign, a gesture that originated with the Hunger Games and has been used to voice discontent with the military's actions. Making the sign violates Thailand's martial law. Additionally, a poor precedent has been set this past week as a peaceful protester was handed a one-month prison sentence and ordered to pay a fine for partaking in demonstrations after the coup. While there has otherwise not been too much backlash following the coup, the country's army chief, Prayut Chan Ocha, is obviously leery of any resentment. He has released a roadmap for the country to return to civilian rule and make progress, but that is progress on his terms. The issue with that roadmap is that it won't account for a lot of the grievances that the people have so long as their voice is stifled. Sure, you can't expect a military to be open to free speech after a coup, but in Thailand, it needs to hear the concerns of the people. Subsidies, something the military has increased, certainly help the people and win over support. What they don't do, necessarily, is resolve the underlying issues that bring people to the streets. Listening to that for a change would help produce a Thailand that is stable in the long term. Let's return briefly now to Ukraine, where last time I mentioned that there was a fragile ceasefire in place and promised to provide an update. That ceasefire is now no more, broken as the government and separatists in the east returned to open conflict. It lasted only 10 days, and both sides traded accusations of who was responsible for breaking it. Even with the Ukrainian army making significant gains against the rebels, support for the separatists in the east has remained high. 
As all-out war has resumed, the two sides have stayed open, at least ostensibly, to continuing peace talks. This is helpful, but skepticism remains. First of all, the ceasefire previously in place was violated countless times to the extent that it was not much of a ceasefire at all. It was more like a water breaker halftime than anything else. Evidently, neither side was as committed to the cessation of fighting as optimism would hope for. Second, as the fighting wears on, both the government and the separatists are becoming more ingrained in their resolve. The government has offered amnesty to the rebels, but if the rebels feel that that won't be respected, they are unlikely to lay down their guns. The government's new president, Petro Poroshenko, recently declared that a turning point in the conflict has been reached. If he feels that the rebels are on their last limbs, why conclude a deal that would offer the rebels more than they can secure on the battlefield and give them time to recuperate? I hate to sound like the bearer of bad news in that sense. Certainly a ceasefire, and here I mean a true ceasefire, would allow some room for a political settlement to be reached that satisfies all parties, including Russia, who is accused by Ukraine of arming the rebellion. If the government and the rebels are truly ready for one, as they say, they should demonstrate it. The longer this goes on, the worse it becomes for not only Ukraine, but Ukraine's neighbors and the European Union. The world may feel as though a massive bullet has been dodged by there not being a conflict between the European Union together with the United States and Russia, but that is a risky and dangerous stance to take, for the crisis can reopen as fast as it began. This is the case so long as the fighting continues. Let's also not forget the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia annexed from Ukraine in March after a referendum was held there calling for independence. Even should the current fighting in the east end in a peaceful manner, Ukraine may well want to press Russia on the peninsula. If Russia did that once, it could do it again just as easily. Indeed, Ukraine's relations with Russia are likely permanently damaged. That isn't to say the two are going to turn their backs on each other. They're too close and linked for that. But what it means is that Ukraine is going to be very concerned about Russian statements and actions in the region. Way back in 1994, Russia, Ukraine, the United Kingdom, and the United States agreed upon something known as the Budapest Memorandum. The memorandum is not legally binding, but was supposed to offer Ukraine a sense of security about the intentions of outside powers. The parties pledged non-interference in Ukrainian affairs in return for Ukraine relinquishing control of Soviet-era nuclear warheads stationed inside of it. Well, Ukraine gave up the nukes and must be positively thrilled that scarcely two decades later, Russia has violated just about every single principle of the memorandum. What motivation is there then for Ukraine to trust Russia? That's a question Ukrainian politicians are grappling with right now and will become more of a factor once the domestic crisis has passed. As though so far in this episode you weren't already in high spirits about the bright and cheery world we live in, let's now journey to Iraq. We spoke about the uprising in Iraq previously, and the crisis there has hardly changed in any positive way since two weeks ago. In fact, it may have gotten worse. The Islamic State of Iraq and al-Shem, a Sunni extremist group, has taken over half the country and continues to menace the capital of Baghdad. Its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, has established a new caliphate that stretches across Syria and Iraq. In announcing the caliphate, he has even changed the group's name to simply the Islamic State, reflecting an openness to expanding the caliphate further. His forces are on the outskirts of Baghdad and have publicly stated that they have cells inside the city waiting for the zero hour to take to the streets. The rest of the world, meanwhile, still seems to be in a state of utter shock. Russia and Iran have sent aid to the Iraqi army while the United States has deployed advisors to collect intelligence. Armed drones patrol over Baghdad. Syrian warplanes are believed to have bombed targets of the Islamic State inside Iraq as well as within Syria. Kurdish troops have skirmished with the Islamic State. 
But at the moment, the Islamic State is not being seriously challenged. It has contested Iraq's largest oil facility and looted money, arms, and equipment as the Iraqis have retreated. It has also secured border crossings into Syria and made advances toward the Jordanian border. Now, as I mentioned before, the longer the Islamic State is able to hold territory, the worse the situation becomes. The Islamic State is well-funded and augmented by captured supplies. But let's not be so grim about the prospects of the organization having staying power. While the Islamic State's rise in Iraq has been aided by frustrated Sunni groups inside Iraq, not all of the Sunni tribes that have allied with it agree with the group's hardline interpretation of religious law or support the dismemberment of Iraq. This is a crucial fact. It's what allowed the United States and Iraq to defeat the Islamic State's predecessor, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in 2007 with the Anbar Awakening. The key in stopping the Islamic State rests in exploiting this rift between it and its current allies. The United States recognizes the wisdom of this and has sought so far to not alienate the Sunni minority population in Iraq by, say, taking too much to Iraqi Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki or Iran. Lobbying for Mr. Maliki to leave office is a smart move. His sectarian rule will prove impossible to reconcile with Sunnis, and it is reconciliation with Iraqi Sunnis that is so desperately needed. There is room to work with Iran, as I've stated before, but on a limited basis. The last thing the United States wants is to be seen aiding a Shia campaign to slaughter Sunnis. It wants to support, rather, an Iraqi campaign to preserve the country, or at any rate mitigate the power of the Islamic State, who it feels could become a threat to American national security in the future. Across the border, in Syria, the United States has continued to toy with the idea of providing more aid to the so-called moderate rebels fighting Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the Islamic State. President Barack Obama has requested $500 million U.S. million to be authorized for direct training of the rebels. Now, once upon a time, those same rebels had high hopes that the United States would assist them in ousting Mr. Assad. This newest aid is not emblematic of the United States fully adopting that idea, much as it may want to, but a strategy of providing just enough to contain the threats in the region. If Mr. Assad fell right now, Syria would probably become what Libya currently is, that is, weak, divided between militia groups and armed to the teeth. Perhaps aware of that, the United States' $500 million would be nowhere near enough to turn the tide against Mr. Assad decisively on the battlefield. What it really does is allow the current status quo to continue on, at a terrible cost, yes, but give the moderate rebels more of a chance to offset the Islamic State in Syria. Undermining the Islamic State and its Syrian haven is a crucial component to reversing its gains in Iraq. So long as it is safe in Syria, it can pose a threat to the region, most specifically Iraq. It's a complicated game with no clear answers. This brings us to the end of our topics for today. In the week ahead, if I had to name the most important issue to be keeping an eye on, besides what we've already discussed, it's the Iranian nuclear talks. These negotiations are nearing their July 20th deadline for a deal. Despite the spirit of Geneva, if you will, there is still a lot of ground to be covered between the P5 plus 1 and Iran, and little time in which to do it. Even with the skepticism, there is a real chance for the deal to work. It is just going to need the determination of those involved. Here is where the world sees just how interested the parties are in figuring out a way for Iran to enjoy its right as a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty while also satisfying safeguards that it is not in the business of building a nuclear weapon. It's a very critical issue and one that is important to watch. We've talked about a lot today and I hope you've enjoyed the program. The situations we discussed are not pretty, but they are very relevant. If you'd like to share feedback or commentary on them, please feel free to do so. I welcome all comments. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a great week.